This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Already got your Bibles open. This. Um, we are picking up in the middle of this description of the tabernacle, which we've been on for a couple weeks. Exodus 28 is a little bit shorter chapter, but it's not short enough to add 29, because if you look at 29, it's pretty big. So I had to sit and think about 28 a little bit, because I'm thinking, well, is either going to be like a 10-minute Bible study, and you're like, yep, the priests wore clothes. Um, <laughs> or you can start thinking about clothing, and which is kind of where we're headed tonight. So, so far, the context is you've got a tabernacle. We haven't lit the lamp yet, so it's a dark place. People can't see inside of it. Uh, God has everything in place um, for us to come and see a model of him or a relationship to him. And we need some worker priests to kind of fill and, and service this tabernacle to take care of it. They had to be priests that were willing to carry things because they had large 250-pound beams of acacia wood that they'd have to haul around whenever they moved this tabernacle. So you think of, like, just the brute strength it would take to carry this. It was huge and weighty. It wasn't just a tent, and it didn't fit in the back of your SUV. Um, so we need some priests. So that's what we're going to get in chapter 28. We're going to get an introduction of the priesthood, but it's a different kind of priesthood. It's not the same kind of priesthood that they were used to back in Egypt, um, where basically you serve the priest, and then the priest goes to you on behalf of God. In this sense, the priest serves the people, and it goes the opposite direction. So we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, and God starts with the adornments um, that uh, that go on the priests first. And I think this is interesting, too. It's not about who the priest is. It's about the adornments they're going to be put upon. And I think clothing is kind of an interesting idea. So, verse 1. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a priest. So there's that reverse relationship. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, you may make holy garments for Aaron and your brother for glory and for beauty. So the priesthood is this role that they're going to have, and we're going to make holy garments or clothing for them. And the point is that the clothing brings the glory, not the person. In fact, Aaron's kids, we're going to see later, they're complete messes. Um, and they are not necessarily the ones that will fill these clothings forever. But we're going to start with those people. And the priests can get moved in and out. So you can switch the high priest, but the adornment stays the same, right? So these priests are servants. The qualification to be a priest is God picks you, and that's about it. That's the qualification. There isn't a list of like what they have to do or not do. They're just the ones that are going to serve. So in that sense, they're born into this family, into Aaron's family, and that birth puts them in this position. Later on, it's the Levites that will be the priesthood. Um, so again, you're just born into it, and that's... Um, you know, it's akin to this idea that uh, in thinking of the priesthood, you're also thinking that in the New Testament, it's declared that we are a priesthood. We're a holy nation of priests. Um, and 1 Peter 2.5 kind of says that you also as lively stones are built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So what the priests are doing at the tabernacle looks a lot like what we're supposed to be doing in the church. We're here to serve and to do these kinds of things. Hebrews 5 and 6 really outlines how Jesus is the new high priest selected by God to be a mediator for humans. And I'll read specifically Hebrews 5, 9 through 10. And having been perfected, 
he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 9 through 11, but Christ came as a high priest um, of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of creation. So again, again, Hebrews is the perfect complementary study to this because it explains all of this is a model of what the church is going to look like. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, puts into place for all of these roles different things. So when we read about the priesthood, we should kind of be reading about some of our own things. For glory and beauty, people see the garments, not the person. And there is something heavenly about serving God. There's something glorified or beautiful about it. And when we serve in our churches or we serve in the communities we live in and we serve other people, there's something really glorious and beautiful about that. Verse 3. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the great with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. Isn't it interesting that he names the priests, but he doesn't name the artisans? And the artisans get the blessing of wisdom, and the priests get nothing. So your qualification to be a priest, you're a dude that can lift things. Qualification to get this blessing of wisdom is you're an artist. And I think that's just kind of cool. The named aren't blessed, and the blessed people are nameless. All then goes to the glory of God. God involves people again, like he did with the tabernacle, and we've seen that for a couple chapters now. Uh, it's interesting how this collection of materials and this heave blessing that people gave also comes with all these needs of people to help build God's church, to build his tabernacle. You need, so far, we need weavers, artisans, embroiderers, blacksmiths, lumberjacks, tailors, leather workers. So you've got all these different craftspeople that have been required to do this work so far, and that's not over with the clothes. So the clothes got to be something amazing. We have costume designers. The spirit of wisdom, throughout the Bible, the spirit of wisdom is to, the definition of wisdom is to know the choices that are rooted in God's will and experience, to be able to know the mind of God and act accordingly. That's wisdom, right? Or fear of God in Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom. People who really honor the Lord are the wise people. And these artisans get this fear of God and think, boy, if we're going to make the priests clothes, they got to be amazing. And when artists think amazing, they tend to make amazing. And they do amazing things. But that spirit of wisdom gives them that motivation to do that. I want to do this for the glory of God. They're gifted artisans. So that made me think, apparently, they weren't all brick makers. So where did these artisans come from? Because in Egypt, remember, they were making bricks, right? And you had that mixed multitude that came with the Israelites when they left Egypt. And you wonder if the artists were mixed in with the mixed multitude that came with them or if these people were actually children of um, Jacob, right? So if they were in those kinds of roles. So anyways, there were artists and people with really gifted talents who could do this. Verse 4, and these are the garments which shall make which they shall make. We start off with kind of a list and we'll kind of go through each one. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. This is a stylish outfit because it has a stash, a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as a priest. So this is the third time that we see the phrase that, that they may minister or that he may minister. To minister is to serve. And it's to be a servant, is to minister to someone. So the first ministry they have is to minister to God, not the people and not themselves. So they first serve God, um, and later we'll see that they're there to serve the people too. And those are the two roles of the priest. 
that's the exact same thing that Jesus said we should do. We should love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the role of the priesthood then, and it's the role of the priesthood in the New Testament too. So the clothing that we have, I want to talk about clothing because this is a really interesting kind of study throughout the Bible. It seems like whenever you're introduced to major characters in the Bible or even strangers in the Bible, one of the first things the Bible does is it tells you what they're wearing. And not to make the, all of us into style freaks, like, but what you wear matters. And it has some, throughout the Bible, we see that that matters in different ways. In Daniel 5, 7 and Luke 16, 19, we see that royalty is clothed in purple, right? Even when that purple is put on in mockery in the case of Jesus in Mark 15, 17, they put a purple robe on him, but that clothing still ascribes to him rulership, right? So even when humans do it in mockery, God sometimes sees that adornment as an ascribing of worth or value. When you put on the garments, it's what you become. It's not that you are that thing and then you put on the clothing. For instance, Pharaoh clothes Joseph in fine linen, and in doing that, Joseph becomes a ruler in Egypt. It's not that Joseph was a ruler in Egypt. It's that the master clothes someone in a certain kind of thing, and that's in Genesis 41. We already did that. So part of what happened there is Joseph was right about the dreams, so he was replacing that. Remember, his dad gave him a coat of many colors, and that got him in trouble because his, br his brothers saw him as in charge. The clothing made who he was, right? The clothing makes the man. Is, was that an old ad campaign or something like that? <laughs> when Saul recognizes David's going to be his new champion against Goliath, the first thing he does is he tries to put clothing on him, right? He tries to give him his armor, to tell everybody about the position, 1 Samuel 17. David, later on in life, when he wants to be one of the people that carries the ark, it gives you this description that he puts on fine linens to do that. And our priests are going to put, put on fine linens too. So 1 Chronicles 15, verse 27, Dave puts on these fine, fine linens. We see that fine linens often get associated with being clothed not just in white linen, but in righteousness, right? Job 29, 14. Or you can get clothed in shame. And that clothing can be sackcloth or ashes, right, that represent mourning or devastation. You put these things on so you can show the world what you are, right? So to be clothed in shame is to be not actual clothing, but an emotion that goes with it. It doesn't tell us what the clothing is there. Job 8:22. In Psalm 30:11, you are clothed in gladness. So again, an emotion. You can be clothed in an emotion that you show to other people, right? You can be clothed in power, Psalm 16 or 65. You can be clothed in humility, 1 Peter 5, 5. And to be clothed in humility means that's what other people see when they run into you. You're clothed in these things, right? Priests then are clothed in righteousness in Psalm 132, 9. But here in Exodus, they're going to be clothed in fine linen, right? And that linen gets associated with it. Which made me think of another character that describes what they're wearing, which is John the Baptist. Do you remember what he was wearing? Camel hair. Just out of nowhere, you get this description of camel hair, which you've seen nowhere else in the Bible. But it tells you what John's wearing as a way for you to understand who John is, right? Linens then get used for righteousness. It's a clothing that covers humans. And the meaning then is in the clothes. So you have this idea of kind of clothing having these opposite meanings, or they can have meanings. There's the righteousness of linen, and there's the devastation of sackcloth. And depending on where people are at and what they want to show people, but also this environment where masters clothe their servants. 
age, angels or anytime you see a Christophany in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 9, 10, Daniel 10, 5, um, you see angels getting were in sackcloth. And it'll introduce the character like that, like in Mark 16, 5. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. You're supposed to read that and see, oh, they're in a long white robe. This is a righteous person sitting in the tomb. And that's the way the Bible describes the person is by what they're wearing. Am I beating a dead horse with this? It keeps going. So part of clothing someone is that it ascribes worth to the person, especially when a master clothes their servant. And the idea here is the priests aren't making their own outfits. The people are making outfits for the priests and God is putting those outfits on these people. It's not that the people in their own righteousness can serve as a priest. It's that God clothes them in righteousness and he gives them the clothing to do that. I think that's an important concept because sometimes we're scared to do what God's called us to do because we don't know that we're worthy. We don't know if we're good enough, smart enough, all those kinds of things. There's that insecurity that comes in. But when you're clothed in these robes as a priest, you do the work of a priest. You don't do it halfway. You don't do it partially. You are in that role. So it's important that we do that for other people too. I like the idea of ascribing worth to people. And teachers in the room, you do this every day. You tell kids what they're worth. They don't know. You have to tell them, right? I think you're this. I think you're that. And you're clothing them in things. Matthew 25, 36 says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Nakedness throughout the Bible is not a good thing. It's the first thing Adam and Eve realize when they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the first kind of thing is I'm exposed. I'm totally naked before people. And that's a bad thing. When people get upset, right, they rend their clothing. And what's under their clothing, if they're not priests, is probably nothing, right? It's complete exposure. Jesus wasn't crucified in a cross with a nice little pair of diapers on. He was crucified, he was crucified in the nude, right? And that not having clothing on is kind of a thing for humans that's embarrassing and shameful. And all those like flabby parts that we have that we don't want other people to see get exposed to the world, right? There's nothing between us and others. So clothes are an indicator of placement, status, role, um, emotion. Clothes are a, 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 an indicator of what we are going to be, not who we are, right? And we don't necessarily earn those things, especially if a master gives them to us. So this next outfit that we're going to read about is for the high priest, and it's the one that the Son of Man will wear in Revelations 1.13. The high priest is the person who wears this outfit. The high priest outfit is amazing. The priests kind of get working clothes, right? But the high priest, there's something special here. First, they get an ephod. And I didn't know what an ephod was, but apparently it's like an apron. You wear it kind of around your waist. It hangs down. Um, you shall take the gold, purple, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the, and the fine linen, and they shall make an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It's going to be beautiful, right? And they shall have two shoulder straps joined to it at its edges, and so it shall be joined together. And it the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. This is the exact, exact set of materials that we saw inside the tabernacle. Remember those curtains, the white curtains that had these angels or cherubim done into them? So the priest is going to match that image of heaven, right? They're going to look more like heaven than like humans. Verse 9, Then you shall take two onyx stones 
and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, now we have a new artisan, an engraver has to show up. Like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. So the priest bears the names of Israel as a servant, first as a ministry to God, second to Israel. The shoulders are always for work. When you put a yoke on, that yoke sits on your shoulders, and that's how you move and pull things in the ancient world. So for the priest to put something on his shoulders means he's going to bear them up and he's going to work for them, right? So he's working or he's a servant of Israel when he puts Israel on his shoulders. Um, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod and as, as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord and his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. So this ephod is ornate. It's interesting. God starts from the outside of the outfit and he works its way all the way to the underwear. So unlike the tabernacle where he worked from the ark and worked his way out, but on these outfits where he adorns people, it, he starts with what you see. So the breastplate comes next. You should make a breastplate of judgment. The priests would serve in the role of judges. They would make decisions and they get the they get tools to do that in a little bit. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. So you're going to fold it over, this breastplate. You shall put settings of stones for it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardis, a topaz, and an emerald. And this shall be its first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. And you're thinking Dickers is going to research all 12 of these stones. Here's the problem. They don't really get mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. There aren't consistent patterns around these stones. The only real statement we can make around these stones without kind of completely making things up or even turning to like witchcraft where they have meanings for all the stones, the only real meaning with these stones is that they're valuable. And there's 12 of them, and there's 12 tribes of Israel, where we just put 12 names on the, on the onyxes, right? So there's 12 of these stones clearly representing the tribes of Israel. We have no idea in the Bible. We don't see the meaning behind these stones at all. So I don't want to go there. So essentially, there's going to be 12 stones of extreme value on this, on this outfit. They're in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the 12 tribes. So the priest bears these, the names of these 12 tribes on his shoulders and on the breastplate, which goes right over his heart. So he's going to work for the people, and he's supposed to love the people. This is where Jesus gets upset with the Pharisees. They don't love the people. They walk around telling the people what they have to do. They become little police officers, right? And their role changes. They're not supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to be loving people, not accusing people everywhere they go. There's a similar list of gemstones, but it's not the same in Revelations 21. So if you want to go digging for meaning, you can go into Revelation and read that. I'm sorry, Revelation. Did I put an S on the end of that? It's not Revelations. <laughs> it's Revelation. 21 verses 19 and 20, you see a list of gems that looks pretty similar that are going to be baked into the foundation wall of the New Jerusalem. So those walls will have all these gems in it. In both cases, the best or most direct interpretation is 
Lots of value and worth is being ascribed to these things, both the walls of Jerusalem and the high priest. Verse 22, you shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate and the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold into the two rings, which are at the ends of the breastplate. I like verse 24 because this is idiot proof directions, right? You're going to make chains. There's going to be little holes. And then verse 24 is, and then you're going to put the chains in the holes, right? And you're going to do it this way. God doesn't leave things to doubt in certain things. And then in other things, you have tons of room for doubt. Like, what do you do with this, right? But in this one, it's very specific instructions. And on the other two ends of the braided chains, you shall fasten the two settings. So what do you do with these chains sticking out? You tie them together. You fasten them. And put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. So they're going to hang off this kind of garment that gets put over their head. You should make two rings of gold and put them on the ends of the breastplate and on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod, verse 26. And the other two rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front right at the seam above the intricately woven band on the ephod. Hard to picture in your head, but essentially the breastplate's going to be strapped on, snugged on. You're going to tighten this stuff on like it's armor. So it goes close to the heart. It's not loose fitting, right? You're going to tie these things off, and he probably had a little squire that would help him get you know, outfitted where they fasten these things. The chains make it so different sized people could wear this outfit because it's not a one size fit. It's not built custom for Aaron. It's built for anybody who fills that role. So you're going to have that tied off or clasped together, but you've got these chains that can do it. And they had to make it for different people because remember there's the high priests that go into the Holy of Holies, and if there's sin and they haven't properly prepared themselves, they die in the Holy of Holies. So it's not like the job that people seek after. And you talk to a lot of priests or a lot of pastors today, and it's, it, they'll tell you, like, don't go after the pastorship unless you really feel called to it because it's really a hard job. And people will go after you and people will attack because they want church a certain way and whatnot. It's not a, this is a job that would have a lot of fear that went with it. Because once a year you got to go into the Holy of Holies and you could come out being pulled by a rope instead of coming out of your own accord, right? Verse 28, they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings and the rings on the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. They're tight. They go together, right? Cinch it up, hold it firm. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. This is interesting. So we've got the ephod. You've got the names of Israel on his shoulders. You've got the names of Israel on his heart, pressed close. And, verse 30, you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. So Aaron, so Aaron shall be the bearer of judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What? The Urim and the Thummim mean light and perfection. So that doesn't help. What exactly? There's like a little pocket then apparently in this breastplate, and there's two somethings, an Urim and a Thummim that go in this pocket. And how does that help with judgment? So the names light and perfection are just names, but it doesn't tell us what they are. So people think it could have been just a couple of stones or it could have been like two diamonds, but it would have been two things that when you reach in and you feel, they feel exactly the same. But when you pull them out, they look different. So a black stone and a white stone or a shining object or another, we don't really know what these words mean, but we do know that they were for decision-making. 
you'd go to the high priest and you'd ask a question. Should I marry Stephanie? And the high priest would pray and go to God and reach inside his little thing and he'd pull out a little stone that says, yes, you should. And you think, really? This is, I mean, that's like going to a fortune teller, isn't it? The difference is with the high priest, the yes is yes and the no is no. It's unequivocal, right? A fortune teller will kind of read your reaction to what they say and then they'll play in a direction where they're telling you what you want to hear, usually. But in this case, or they have these large, complex situations. Pagan worship will do, they'll give obscure things like that little shaking eight ball. And they'll give kind of obscure answers that could really be read any way you want. Fortune cookies do the same thing. You can read into them whatever you want. But with the Urim and the Thummim, there's a yes or a no. And we see throughout the Bible that make your yeses yeses and your noes noes is a common theme. And this is what Levi wants, right? Remember a couple weeks ago, he's saying, wouldn't it be just nice if God just told us yes or no? And we didn't have to figure this stuff out. Well, in this era, before the Holy Spirit showed up and you're supposed to talk to the Holy Spirit and make those decisions, you go to the high priest and just say, I just want to know, should I do this or should I do that? Should I stay or should I go? And the Urim and the Thummim would come out and they'd say, here's your answer. And then you could just do that on faith and God could work with that. Or you could ignore it and say, I don't want to listen to the high priest. But you got an answer one way or the other. So the Urim and the Thummim. Um, and I already say Numbers 27, 21. Okay, we see the Urim and Thum get used through, in various places through the Old Testament. We don't see it getting used in the New Testament at all. And for us as modern New Testament covenant generation people, we forget how important the Urim and the Thummim was to the Old Testament church, right? Go to God and get your answer. So Numbers 27, 21, they decide if they should stay or go. Sometimes, 1 Samuel 28, 6, God didn't answer. How does that happen? The priest just goes around and says, I don't, I don't know where they went. I don't have an answer for you. But sometimes there wasn't an answer, and I can't figure that out for the life of me. Because the priest had to just decide, like, I can feel the two, the urum and the thummim in this little pocket, but I'm not going to pull them out for you. God told me to not pull one out. Well, that would be an answer you didn't expect, which is why it gets written in 1 Samuel 28.6. That was a totally unique situation. Um, it's implied in a couple other passages where people ask things of the Lord. They go to the tabernacle or they go to the temple and they ask things of the high priest or of the Lord. So the high priest is simply an instrument of the Lord in this case. Judges 1.1, 1, 1, Judges 20.18 through 23. Um, but it's if you think of it in another way, this is actually a lot better than just going off your gut or going off of what you feel, right? So if you've got a real big situation, instead of just letting your flesh decide which what you should do or what you shouldn't, you go to the high priest and you get an answer. You know, you wonder if some of the corrupt high priests would mark one of the stones so they could kind of feel the one they wanted, which would be totally wrong. They shouldn't do that. Um, but the Urim and the Thummim is used to then go to a high priest. You wait on that answer from the high priest because they got to go into the holy place, ask their question of God with prayer, and then they come out and they give you an answer. And then you have to decide if you want to trust that that's God's word or not. So there's still an element of faith involved. And you think, this is kind of a cool system. I can truck down to the temple. I can ask my big question. I got to wait for an answer so I'm not making rash decisions. I have to sit there and think about it. And then they come out and they give me an answer. Have you ever like drawn straws or, done, or flipped a coin? And then you get the answer when you flip the coin and you're like, yeah, that's now I'm disappointed because I really wanted heads and what I got was tails. So that can happen with the Urim and the Thummim too. What I really wanted was the Urim, but what I got was the Thummim. But now you know where your heart is really at with that kind of thing. So the Urim and the Thummim. 
not a lot of mention of it in the Bible throughout. We get these little hints here and there about it. But there's this element where you could go to the priest and ask a question and hear directly from God that way. Verse 31, we get a robe. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Remember the cost of the blue dye, the little snail shells on the beach that had to get dried out and those little glands? You want to dye an entire robe? That's a year's worth of labor to collect that amount of dye to dye this robe. This is an extremely opulent, expensive robe. Those poor little snails. There shall be an opening for its head. And they've done excavations in Israel and they have one of the newer tells just a few years ago, 2014. They found stacks of these shells in this in this garbage dump that was in one of the tells. And they so the Jews made a business of getting this blue dye, right? There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening like the opening in a coat of mail. And then look at this, so that it does not tear. I want to come back to this. The high priest's robe should never tear. It should be one robe. And the only time we see it tear is in front of Jesus Christ himself. The veil in the tabernacle, same thing. It's not supposed to tear. It's got these big gold sockets all the way around it. The only time it tears is when Jesus rises from the dead. So we'll get back to that, and I'll read you that passage. There shall be an opening its head from the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around the opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. You put it on over your head. Upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold all around, between them all around. The bells have a practical purpose. The pomegranates just represent fruitfulness right? Because it's one piece of fruit, but inside there's lots of little fruits. We've had pomegranate. In the 70s, pomegranate was huge. Like everybody that was trendy was feeding their families pomegranate for the vitamins it had and all the healthy things. But we don't really do pomegranates anymore. Like I, we haven't had one in our home in a long time. But when I was a kid, we always had to eat them. And I hated them because they had little seeds in them. But anyways, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the helm of the robe all around. So Apparently, there's going to be golden bells and pomegranates around the hem or around the face. So whenever you walked, you would jingle, right? <laughs> so you sounded like Santa Claus when you walked around. But there's a purpose for that, and that is if the jingling stopped, the other priest knew that the priest was dead. <laughs> so once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around their ankle. And if they heard the bells ringing, they knew that that priest was praying, was talking to God, and things were going well. Or they could say, hey, are you okay in there? And they could hear a jingle, jingle, and they'd know that they're okay. But if the jingling stopped, they'd take the rope and they'd haul the dead high priest out of the Holy of Holies. Something had gone wrong. You should fear God. The God is powerful. And if you come before God and you haven't been sanctified, God can't tolerate that because God is perfect and just and true. So it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers. Congratulations, Aaron, you get the job. And the sound of it will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out that he may not die. Okay? And the key, the key there then is these priests would be doing that and they'd be alive. You want the bells to keep ringing. Then there's a turban. Turban is a long piece of clothing that gets wrapped around the head again and again. They didn't have like nice hat makers in the ancient world, so turbans were kind of just a piece of cloth you'd wrap around your head. They'd be sometimes extremely long, and the turbans would get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they'd look very priesthood-like, right? This would have been one of those turbans. And it's really the same kind of uh, 
style as Egyptian priests would have turbans too often in many of those uh, places. So you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban that shall be on the front of the turban. So again, we're going from the outside in with the clothing. So they're going to put this turban on and on the outside of it, there'll be a plate of metal that says holiness to the Lord across their forehead. So on their shoulders, they've got the children of Israel. On their heart, they've got the children of Israel. On their head, they've got holiness to the Lord. That should be what you're thinking when you're serving as a priest. You're not thinking of yourself. You're thinking of everything to the Lord. When I taught this morning at church, afterwards people come up to you and they want to tell you what they thought about your sermon, which is, I should write some things down that people say, but it's always a joy when people come up and they appreciate the teaching. And it's real easy to take that and be prideful. Well, yeah, that was an awesome teaching, right? Zach had that when he got to teach and people are like, thanks for teaching. And you really have to condition yourself to just say, praise the Lord. I'm glad you were blessed by it. Like, and to take holiness and give it right to the Lord. Like, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's not that I taught really well. It's the Bible had good things to say, and I clearly communicated it. So if I do my job, I'm not the thing that's in the middle. It's you begin to appreciate the Lord. Or better yet, you appreciate the outfit that these priests were wearing. Like, oh, that's cool symbolism that they got. So it shall be on their forehead, verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Even the best of humans are going to offer things that have iniquity. Even the most holy gifts we can offer God are not really holy gifts. So God has to have this reminder that this is about, it's the best humans can offer. And God still accepts that. When we admit that he is holy and that we're not holy, when the gift is tainted, when we admit that, it becomes holy. Does that make sense? I think that's a great concept that humans wouldn't really come up with that because we like to think what we do is awesome, right? But in this case, the holiness is to the Lord in the gift and that's what it should always be on our heads. It should always be on our mind. God accepts this based on the role or the rule of the priest. He accepts it in spirit and in trust. And in that sense, we should seek that too. It's not a legalistic thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's, it's a gift of the heart that matters, right? Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, which without which no man shall see the Lord. We don't get to see the Lord unless we're seeking holiness, right? This is my kind of that discussion we have about kind of those things in life that we want to debate about. And often the debate is about whether or not we can or we can't do something or we should or we shouldn't do something. At the end of the day, what should guide that decision is holiness. Which one of those options is more holy than the other? And how do we pursue holiness, not out of a legalistic heart, but out of a love for God and a fear for God? That's how we should do it. Verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread, and you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. So only one high priest gets this fancy outfit. The rest of them get tunics. It, which are um, essentially working clothes, right? If you're going to go handle all these sacrifices, you need to have things that can be practical and workable. So they get tunics in verse 40. Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. They should be well-dressed. It should be pretty, but they're practical. They're tunics. They don't get the ephod, and they don't get 
the breastplate and they don't get all these other things, okay? So the high priest is adorned with a particular kind of glory and beauty, but all these other priests get adorned in simple tunics in, of made of, of linens. They have sashes. This doesn't sound like Paul's description of the armor of the Lord, does it? But a high priest or holy priesthood, they're just workers and they just do their thing. And there's glory and beauty in that work too. That's what it is. So Revelations 3.5, again, we're back to this clothing theme. Those white garments that these priests wear show up in Revelations. 3.5, he who overcomes, that might be you or me, shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name, blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. And Revelation 7, 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the tribes and nations and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, all of them clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. End of days, we're all getting the same outfit. We're all going to be clothed in these outfits, which look a lot like the priesthood, right? The high priest is set apart. All the other priests wear clothes that declare the righteousness of God. That's our job. Verse 41. Then you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me, to God, as priests. So there's three important aspects of the priesthood and the service to God. There's, and they're, they're stated separately. These are very different things. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them. This is what you do to prepare people for ministry. They need to have all three. Anointing is done with oil. God's chosen get anointed throughout the Bible. In some theatrical versions of this, that's taking a whole thing of oil and just pouring it on their heads. Um, probably anointing was more like taking a dab of oil and putting it on people's foreheads, right? And we do that in some churches today. We still do that. The anointing meant that that person is being called by God. They're chosen by God. That opportunity for ministry is opened up. In other words, the very first condition of ministry is that there's an opportunity and God chooses you to do it. The nice answer to that question is if you feel called to ministry, you are called to ministry. And that's kind of the new covenant, right? Number two, consecration. In the Hebrew, that's two words, male yad, which means an open hand, right? So you shall open hand them, and that doesn't mean to slap them, okay? <laughs> it means that those hands are going to be filled, um, or to fill an open hand is where you get that. It's where we get the phrase holy hands being offered to the Lord. That's the second condition of ministry. Not only do you have the opportunity and the calling to serve, but you actually have hands that are open and ready to be filled by God. You're ready to do the work of God, right? And number three, to sanctify them, those priests are supposed to be set apart and clean. Right? So we don't have the instruments for cleansing yet. Those are going to be in the next couple chapters. But they should be they should be sanctified. You shouldn't have sinful people serving God. And we have this in the ministry. Sadly, it comes up in churches all the time. You get people that are in the ministry and they're just doing stuff behind the scenes that they shouldn't be doing. It kills their ministry and it kills their testimony for God. And I think it's something that brings a lot of shame on the church. So the third condition is just as important as the first two. First two, they should be sanctified in what they're doing, right? Each is distinct, important, and necessary. Then my favorite verse, they have to have underwear, right? So we're working from the outside in. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. And they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So they're wearing boxer briefs, okay? 
I think this is cool. Don't, uh, okay. I, you could joke about this. And some people don't, they take it really seriously. Like the Mormons still wear their magic underwear, right? And it comes right from verses like this, right? So I can laugh about it and chuckle a little bit, but there's actually something that's kind of important here. This sets this priesthood apart from any other priesthood. In the ancient world, priests were kind of self-serving people. They're very powerful people. And they could do anything they wanted to people that came into their temples. So throughout the Egyptian world, the Greek world, the Roman world, we know that these priests, in today's standards, we'd say they abused people when they walked in. They did it in a, in a, lot, of, a lot of ways. These religions were things where people were coming in and they were just getting harassed and abused by these priests. The Catholic Church is struggling with that right now. They've got these priests that abuse their position and they do it in sexual ways. While in the Egyptian world, that was standard. You go into the temple of Aphrodite, the whole place is filled with prostitutes, right? It's all about that temptation, right? And there's, in all of these ancient worlds, there were religions or temples where it was all about that. In God's priesthood, uh-uh, keep your pants on, right? And I think that's cool because it sets them apart. The priesthood is not your opportunity to take advantage of people. It's your opportunity to serve people. It's not about you. Keep your pants on. And I just think that's a great idea. So they get to wear zippy underwear. I like that it's linen, not wool. This is lightweight and comfortable underwear, right? They, God could have put them in uncomfortable underwear, but he doesn't. He puts them in, in linens, in fine linens, right? So these would have been comfortable clothing, right? To be naked, again, is something where one is unclothed, bare, exposed in shames, and priests were not supposed to be exposed like that. If the wind blew their robes up, we were not supposed to be in panic mode about getting scarred for life, right? Okay? So we see that coming. Job it reflects his distress when he talks about nakedness. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the priest's case, they'd been given to. They're not in this mode where they're destitute, right? Solomon says the same in Ecclesiastes, right? Ezekiel throughout mentions nakedness as punishment, as retribution, and as humiliation. Where clothing is an honor, nakedness is shameful. The veil in the temple then, I want to come back to that idea of ripping. The priests uh, had these robes. It's interesting in Matthew 26, the priests should keep their clothes on, right? Because it's not about them and their emotions. It's about their service. This gives us new eyes to read what happened in Matthew 26. In fact, if you want to jump there, I'm going to read a larger section of this. This is an important thing I've read over almost my whole Christian life. That this should, to a Jewish reader, this passage would have stood out and went like, whoa, oh my goodness, because it's commanded that you stay clothed. And that, remember we read that, that the tunic that they wore wasn't supposed to tear, wasn't supposed to rip. Right? And they're supposed to wear this underwear too. They're not supposed to be exposed like that because it's not about the priest. It's about their service to God. And in that sense, they should keep those clothes there. To rip these clothes is a great affront, not just to the person that you're angry about. It's an affront to God. Matthew 26, starting down in, uh, well, I'm going to start in 59. Look at the context of this situation. We have the high priest tearing his robes. Right? And this should not happen. Right? Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the councils sought false, test, false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They've decided they don't like this guy who heals people and gives people hope. Right? But they found none. He's done nothing wrong. Right? Does that stop him? Heck no. 
Even though many wit false witnesses come forward, they found no fault. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, verse 61, and they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. The high priest arose and said to him, The high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? He's talking to Jesus. What is it these men testify against you? Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered him and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. First of all, the high priest has Urim and Thummim. He should be able to ask that question of God directly, right? Christians would say, but he did ask God directly. He asked Jesus, and if Jesus is God, he actually was doing his high priestly duty. Are you the Christ, the Son of the God? Verse 64. But Jesus said to him, it's as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest, verse 65, tears his robe, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's deserving death. At this point, the priesthood is now in opposition to God. The priesthood is destroyed, right? And when, Je and of course, when the Jewish readers are reading this, they would know Jesus rose from the dead and proved that he was God. So not only did they not listen to God and accept his answer, they tore their robes and the priesthood's destroyed. They've ruined it. 1,500 years of priesthood. And this high priest thinks it's his right to tear his robes, Caiaphas. It's not his right to tear these robes. When he tears them, he's breaking an institution, right? But he's so selfish, he's so already decided Jesus' guilt that, he's not, that, he, that he basically destroys the priesthood. So they spat in his face and they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of his hands. These are not open hands. These are not consecrated hands. These are not hands willing to serve and love the people. These are hands that are striking the people. Saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who's the one who struck you? They're mocking and they're attacking. This priesthood is done. And Matthew writes this story in part because he's showing you the priesthood is over. It's done. And if you read Exodus, Exodus 28, you know that robe shouldn't have been torn. That high priest rending his clothing exposes his nakedness. He shouldn't have done that right? When Matthew points it out, he's telling what happened, but he's reminding folks that Caiaphas is just a man, just a man, and he's a sinful man. It's the clothing that mattered, and it's the clothing that Caiaphas destroyed, right? Who tears what God's given him? When God gives you a gift or a talent or a skill, who are you to not use that talent, right? You think other people don't want to see it? That's not your decision. God's given you a gift, a talent, a skill, a service, a duty. You should do it. You know, they talk about that in the New Testament too. If your gift is teaching, you should teach. If your gift is leadership, you should do it with perseverance. If your gift is singing, you should sing. You should do those things you're gifted to do. And to not do it is to defy what God's brought about in his holy priesthood. Shame on you. You shouldn't do that. Glory and beauty comes to the priests that put on their robes and do the work they're supposed to do. Do those things you're called to. And rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord God, for he is graceful and merciful. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of evil. Joel 2.13, that's Old Testament teaching. Not supposed to tear your garments. 
back to our chapter, verse 43. I told you I could have got through this really fast. And then I started thinking about that stuff and that clothing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Verse 43, they shall be on Aaron. The clothing shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to the, in the holy place, that they do not incur the iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. You don't get to come before God unless you've put on the clothing God's given you. Right? In tearing those clothes then, the high priest denied his trust in God, he denied the obedience to God, and he's no longer representing God to the people. Jesus did the exact opposite. And this is interesting. In inheriting the priesthood, Jesus is laid bare but gets glorified in doing it, right? In being killed on the cross, he is glorified and beauty is added to him. And what did they do when they took him down from the cross? They wrapped him in white linens and they buried him in those linens. Jesus is stripped. There's no underwear. He's whipped. He's beaten. But that's where his glory comes from. It's in his exposure, right? Okay. They put a robe on him to mock him, but he act, they actually put that robe of purple on him, and they gave him kingship in doing so. They ascribed unto him the color of kingship, and they ascribed unto him when he died the color of priesthood. Both priest and king was put on Jesus. He didn't put it on himself. Instead of having opals on his shoulders, he got a cross on his shoulders. And he had to bear the weight of the world as he dragged that through the city, right? Instead of a golden crown on his head or a plate that says holiness unto the Lord, he got a plate above his head that says king of the Jews and he got a a crown of thorns pushed into his scalp, right? He didn't wear righteousness. He was righteousness. Eternal righteousness for us. You start to see where these things would come through and work on the heart of Peter who denies Christ three times and then he raises from the dead and he goes, I just denied God. And Peter became the strongest servant of the church. The rock of the church as Jesus called him. He became Peter, not because he was Peter, but because Jesus had named him that, ascribed him that, and adorned him with this Holy Spirit at the Pentecost. And he spoke in boldness and truth, not because Peter's this guy that's any better than a chicken that runs away from little girls, right? He's not the guy that has the value, but when he's ascribed or given the Holy Spirit, he becomes something of great worth to the church, great preciousness. Matthew 27, verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. They shall be on Aaron and his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to the holy place. Jesus in his death goes before God and he becomes our mediator and he has the right clothes on, right? He eternally goes into an eternal place and makes an eternal appeal for humanity. The high priest is clothed in, in, in things that come from heaven. Jesus is clothed in clothing that comes from eternal righteousness, right? Believers then are clothed by God from heaven, 2 Corinthians 5.3. Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. We don't have to go before the Lord on our own strength. We are clothed in righteousness, not because we are righteous, but because we've been put on righteousness. For we know 
that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this, in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we are in this tent groaning, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather than to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Right? We've always heard that last verse, but the whole setup for that verse is you get clothed by God. You're, a, you're given your clothing, just like the holy priests were here. They didn't make the, the clothing. The artists made the clothing. They're given this clothing by God and by the people in order to do this thing. Ministry isn't because you forced your way into it or because you went to seminary. Ministry is because the people around you have said, we appreciate your service. Thank you so much. And you give your service out of love because you love the people you're serving, right? And I love that idea that we don't have to go before God naked. We don't have to be scared of God. What a message of hope. What a gospel. What a great news that we have. As much imperfection as I have, I don't have to be scared to go before God because God has ignored that perfection and clothed me in righteousness and in perfection. This body, this tent, as, as, as Paul points it out, this tent is something we're going to throw off. We're all going to die, but we don't have to be scared of immortality because we've been given a spirit of eternity by God. So death, bring it on. Here we go. So to be absent from the body is to be present with God, and to be in the body is to be absent from God. So as long as we have this tent on us, we have this separation, this veil, this distance from God. And when we pass, our eternal beings will get to be with God. That's Christianity. That's the teaching. That's the hope that these people went around the ancient world teaching. And the thing that backed that hope up is that Jesus had rose from the dead. You know what's interesting? When you read that resurrection, there's also mention of various tombs being opened up around the temple area. Jesus wasn't the only one that was resurrected. There were a bunch of there were a bunch of dead people walking around, right? That gets the attention of the planet. Like, oh my goodness, it's a zombie apocalypse, right? And it <laughs> captures their imagination, right? But somehow I imagine there was a restoration to their bodies just like there was to Jesus' body. So take out the image of zombie apocalypse, put in the image of all these grandparents waking up and hanging out with their families for a little bit, right? All these former priests getting rezzed from the grave and brought out and people going, wow, death is not the end. There's a different adornment that we're going to have put on us. There's a different tent that we get put into after this life is over. Amen to that. Because this body has a sore back. This body gets a headache. This body gets cotton mouth when I talk too much. This body is bald and it gets really cold in the wintertime and you start to think about your baldness when it's winter, right? This body is failing. And it will fail. And you're all young people. Just wait till you're in your 40s. You start to recognize, oh, this isn't going to last forever. Like things don't work. Like my knee is creaky now and it never used to be creaky. And then you get to be in your 80s and you just keep complaining and complaining. Everybody's sick of hearing you complain, right? (laughs) Stop complaining, Grandpa. We've heard enough. So eventually you stop complaining and you recognize this life is short. 
we don't get to be here long. But while we're here, let's use the gifts and talents God's given us and let's serve the king the way we've been called to serve. And in that comes our joy and happiness. That's the tabernacle. Until next week, and we'll go on with more pieces of this. But again, it just keeps getting cooler and cooler. And all of these things help us to understand our relationship with God. So I hope you enjoyed it. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you clothe us like you did your holy priests. Lord, we thank you we don't have to make the clothes. We don't even know how. Um, Lord, we thank you that we don't have to ascribe our own righteousness, that, Lord, you give us righteousness. We don't come up with it ourselves. We are not in ourselves anything other than imperfect. And, Lord, we just thank you that you accept us, even in our iniquity, that we can put holiness is the Lord on our heads, and, Lord, that we can come before you with that thought alone. Um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to serve. People in the room that serve their church and do things um, on campus or in their schools, Lord, we're just called to serve people and put other people in front of ourselves. Lord, help that ministry to never be too tiring that we can't keep doing it. Help us to never be pressed so much that we become crushed. May our service be that where we have an eternal source of energy and patience with other people and a heart of giving and love and service, Lord, that just shines your light to all the people in our lives. Lord, I pray you bless the people as they serve. May that service be something that we be, that becomes who we are, not because we started that way, but because you've clothed us that way. In Jesus' name, amen.